maybe, Rick? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing today? So uh, my name is Rick Evans. I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Experience Officer for New York Presbyterian uh, and all of our hospitals and facilities uh, in and around um, New York City. Didn't actually start out uh, thinking about healthcare. My, my degrees are actually in theology. Uh, my first career goal uh, earlier in life was to actually be a member of the clergy. And uh, I decided um, just before ordination to not do that. Um, and so I made a, a switch. Initially, my career was in not-for-profit organizations and um, made my way into healthcare uh, because I knew how to raise money. I was a good fundraiser. My first job in a hospital was as their foundation director, uh, and that began my healthcare career. It's been about 20 years. Early on uh, in my career, uh, folks asked me to take on patient experience-related work, what we used to call service excellence or patient satisfaction back in those days, and um, that became uh, increasingly a part of my portfolio. Um, and, and so I've, I've been doing that work for a couple of decades now, and uh, the role of Chief Experience Officer is something that's come about as um, uh, the role of patient experience in public reporting has become um, more proliferated out into, in the public, and so uh, now there are roles for people like me with that experience. If it's all right, I'd like to maybe dive a little bit more into your theology background. Sure. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about what kind of perspective that's given you, um, and how, how does that uniquely suit you to be a patient experience uh, officer? Sure. So the training that I got in um, seminary, and, and I often say I'm really glad I went, and I'm glad I, I left. Um, I have nothing negative to say about um, being a member of the clergy, but um, I feel like I found my, my calling. In the seminary, you're trained in how to um, understand people, how to show empathy to others, how to understand people's uh, deeper needs uh, and to try to meet them. Um, you're also trained on how to motivate and uh, mobilize people. That's a lot of uh, ministry in parishes or in communities is, is connected to that. Uh, and you're also trained extensively in how to uh, speak and communicate. And I can tell you, I use those skills, all of them, uh, empathy, uh, how do you motivate and, and mobilize people around something that's important, uh, and how do you uh, speak to audiences. Uh, I've used those skills every single day that I've worked in healthcare, and I'm I'm glad I, I was trained to do those things in the seminary. Rick, so what drew you towards that industry? Because like you said, a lot of the characteristics that you learned uh, in theology, you could use in any other industry, but healthcare specific, what really drew you there? Well, like a lot of people, um, pe uh, it was due to the influence of others. So it really started for me um, growing up. My mom was a nurse, and so um, I love nurses and uh, have enormous respect for them. I saw what my mom uh, had to do every day. She would take me to work uh, as a volunteer occasionally. So I was exposed to healthcare even as a young person. And then early in my not-for-profit career, uh, after I left the seminary, I had a mentor um, who worked at a hospital in Connecticut. His name was Bill Pawanda. He actually recently passed away, uh, a magnificent human being. And I saw what Bill did in running a hospital, and he helped me see 
how important that work was, how fun it was, how engaging it was, exposed me to a lot of that, and actually helped me see that it was something that I could do. Um, so I would say that one of the biggest influences were people in my life, whether it was my family or early mentors, kind of opened up the door for me, uh, and I walked through it. And looking back at it now, do you feel like healthcare is what you were ultimately meant to do, especially looking back at your different background, or do you see yourself possibly switching over to another industry? Oh, no, healthcare is it for me. Um, and, and I do feel like this was what I was trained and put on this earth to do, uh, in particular with patient experience. Um, you know, I, it's interesting, the title and my focus is on patients and families, and I'm very passionate about uh, hospitals doing right for patients and families. By the way, you know, it's really hard to do that. With the way healthcare is structured in the United States, uh, it's just not as easy as it might sound. Um, but probably my deepest passion is supporting the staff who work in our hospitals, whether they're nurses or transporters, physicians. And I hardly ever meet anyone uh, every day when I walk through our hospitals that doesn't want to do the best for patients. But it's, as I said, it can be very, very challenging. So I feel called, literally, to come to work every day and help our staff succeed, help them uh, live up to what they wanted to be when they became a nurse or a doctor or another uh, professional in healthcare. So I really do feel this is my calling. And, you know, I, I, I could be transparent and say I think healthcare in many ways is um, in a very difficult period. Uh, it's not structured uh, the way it should be. Patients aren't really thrilled with it. Um, we're in a, a period uh, where things are changing rapidly, and I am very motivated every day to come in and try to contribute to making that better. So, Rick, kind of building on that, could you maybe take us through uh, what your average day or your average week might look like? How much time do you spend interacting with actual patients or families versus how much time do you spend with maybe hospital administration? Yeah. So, I mean, I am an administrator, right? So I do go to a lot of meetings. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in my role as chief experience officer, as much as I love being with um, people directly, whether they be patients, families, or staff, and, and I do spend time doing that. I, I round, uh, I walk around, I meet with staff teams. But my primary job, actually at this point in my career, is to really drive organizational strategy to make patient experience better here. So I have to kind of discipline myself to make sure that I'm really focused strategically. And what is that? It might be a discussion around the capital our hospital's going to spend. I'll give you an example. Uh, as we look at the, the, the capital we need to invest in the next, you know, five, six, seven years at New York Presbyterian, one of the big areas of focus is on um, making sure we've got as many private single-bedded rooms as possible. Um, many hospitals that were built, you know, a couple decades ago were all shared rooms. Well, patients don't want that. Uh, and not only do patients not want it, it's not optimal for patient care. So I, I am part of the discussions of, well, where are we going to put our money? How are we going to change our facilities over time? I spend a lot of time with our chief HR officer working on how we train our staff, how we recruit the right people into healthcare. I spend a lot of time with our chief nursing officers thinking about the workflow, the actual on-the-ground workflow of our nurses and how we can help them 
do everything they've got to do and still be able to communicate and connect with patients. So, you know, I, I do every single day, part of my day is spent uh, talking with patients or staff, but because of my role, I've really got to stay um, strategic and, and make sure that I'm influencing uh, the direction of the entire organization to promote uh, patient-centeredness and patient experience. So, Rick, with regards to that influence, earlier you mentioned how it wasn't about making people happy, but rather instilling confidence. What are some ways that you do that? Uh, so, that's a really key concept. A lot of people who look at healthcare think, oh, it's about making patients you know, happy. And that's very debilitating, um, both for patients, because there are many scenarios where you're going to come to the hospital and happiness is not necessarily going to be the thing you're feeling most of the time. And it's very debilitating to our caregivers, to nurses and doctors. They don't, they want to make patients happy, but sometimes making patients happy um, forces us to, to try to do things that aren't really in the patient's best interest. So we talk here about not happiness, but confidence. And what does that mean? It means that when a patient is sitting on one of our exam tables or in a hospital bed, do they feel like they're in good hands? Do they feel like they know what they need to know? Do they feel like they understand what, what the next steps are in their care? And do they feel like the people around them, nurses, doctors, other professionals, understand their needs and that they're in good hands? Uh, I talk about being able to take a deep breath. You feel like, okay, look, you know, I don't know everything that's going to happen, but I feel like I'm in the right place. That's not the same as happiness. It's, it's really um, a different kind of feeling. And when you describe patient experience for staff in that way, I find people are much more bought in. That's something they can buy into. That's something that they want all of their patients to feel. Uh, and that's an important distinction uh, in terms of making patient experience better. So, Rick, I really like what you said there about <clears throat> empowering the patient, but it sounds to me like in order to really maximize that empowerment, you'd also need to have some sort of clinical involvement there. So can you talk maybe a little bit about some steps or conversations you've had with the hospital staff, uh, both from a clinical and non-clinical perspective, to really create that empowering environment for the patient to feel that confidence? Sure. It's a couple things. So. You know, the other thing that's true about patient experience, it's about confidence, but it's also almost totally about communication. So it's not, you know, your parking matters, your food matters, but what really, really matters to patients is, do I understand who's taking care of me, what's going on, and, and even more importantly, what's going to happen next? So a patient that comes into the hospital, we may know the next 20 things that, that's gonna happen, I'm talking about next, like literally the next thing that's going to happen. So a lot of our time is spent helping caregivers, nurses, doctors, others, um, understand how to communicate well with patients in what's often a very, very busy day. So it's not like most nurses and doctors wouldn't love to sit down and talk a little bit longer with our patients and families. I think, I, again, I hardly ever meet anyone that doesn't want to do that. But they're busy. They've got the next patient. They've got a work list that has to be done. They have to distribute medications. They have to take vitals. They have to, you know, uh, get through their daily schedule. So a lot of what we train staff to do is how do you communicate effectively uh, in often a very um, pressured environment? We train people how to manage a patient interaction. 
from beginning to end. How do you start a conversation? What are the key things to address while you're talking to a patient, whether that's for two minutes or 20? And how do you end that conversation in a way that when you leave the room, you've done the very best you can do to make that patient, again, feel confident and to understand what's going to happen next? You know, most of our clinicians, uh, caregivers, they went to nursing school, they went to medical school, they spent years and years uh, uh, acquiring expertise, and we have some of the best in the world. Very few of them were trained in communication. So that's something we can help them with. And when you've got a clinician who's really good clinically and communicate, they're unstoppable. Uh, they're, they're the best that uh, they possibly can be. Interesting. So. At this point, I'd like to maybe take a little bit uh, bigger picture and look at patient experience from an organizational perspective. So could you maybe give us a little bit of background on um, this position or this department's history within New York Presbyterian um, and what was really the trigger, the inflection point that made this a focus within the hospital? Yeah. I think New York Presbyterian, well, first of all, we're the kind of hospital that just wants to be the best. So we're relentless. We want to be the best clinically. We want to be the best um, in the, the finest facilities, and we want to be the best patient experience. Uh, we want our patients to feel that they, they have the absolute best care when they come here. And that's part of our culture. It's part of the two medical schools that we're connected with, both Columbia and Wild Cornell. I mean, we're so lucky to be excellent hospitals connected to the best doctors and clinicians in America, really. So there's this relentless desire to just be the best. And, you know, I've been involved with New York Presbyterian for basically about 15 years, uh, and I know the, the focus on patient experience goes way beyond that. So there's always been our own culture, which is we want to get great care. Uh, having said that, we're also uh, part of what's going on nationally. So you look at the last, you know, 15, 20 years, and I've been able to see that um, happen. It's gone from sort of uh, patient experience has gone from something that is sort of like, oh, it's a nice thing to do. It's certainly connected to our mission. We want people to feel cared for. That's always sort of been there. But now you've got these forces in society um, that are impacting it. So it's not only the right thing to do, but good patient experience is also required for organizational success. So we live in a culture where people rate everything. You know, from the, the food they, they order to the restaurant they go to, to to their doctor in hospital. For many, many years that wasn't part of the equation. It absolutely is now. And that's only going to continue to expand. In addition, uh, payers, whether that's Medicare or private insurance plans, are actually flipping their models of reimbursement. So it's not just paying a hospital for you know, what we're doing, how many surgeries, how many patients you saw, but how well we're doing, the quality of our care. And, you know, it's, it's paying us essentially for our performance. And part of that is patient experience. So what I've seen is that the focus on patient experience over the last 20 years of my career has shifted from it's an important thing, we want to do it, uh, it's the right thing to do, to, yeah, in addition to that, if we don't do this well, we will not survive as an organization, both uh, in terms of, you know, revenue, quality, et cetera. And there, there actually uh, is evidence out there that hospitals with higher levels of patient uh, experience ratings also do much better on quality uh, and, and even financially. 
So it's now a, a real business imperative, which is why there are people like me around the country to make sure that we are strategically organized to do well with patient experience. Fantastic. So I'm really glad you mentioned there kind of the importance that it's taken within the business and uh, how integral it is kind of to, to survive, I think, in today's healthcare environment. Can you talk a little bit about how New York Presbyterian is tracking patient experience initiatives? How are you really measuring the impact of all of these? And um, do you make these publicly available by any chance? Like, you know, if, if I'm a uh, kind of a layman, I want to go to, out to eat tonight, and I get on Yelp and I find the best restaurant, do I have that kind of similar functionality at NYP to maybe figure out what the best department and the best physician is? Um, how much transparency is there from a patient perspective? Yep. So we absolutely, let me start at the beginning, we measure patient experience and we use uh, survey tools to do that and there are other ways we get data, but survey data is, is the bulk of, the, the core of, of our measurement. We have lots and lots of data from our patients on what they think uh, and we ask them things, by the way, that they're expert in. We're not asking them, did we give you the right test or those kind of questions. We're asking them, did you feel listened to? We, were things explained to you in a way that you understood? We ask patients about the things that they are uniquely qualified to give us um, feedback on. And so we've got lots of data. We're very deliberate about collecting it, analyzing it, setting goals and targets for the organization, making sure that if we're trying to improve a particular aspect of, of survey data, that we're deploying evidence-based best practices to do that. You know, we're talking here about this work going on for decades now. There's a body of knowledge. We know about practices, interventions, that if you do them consistently, you'll have a better patient experience because patients feel communicated with, they understand what's going on. It's a win-win. So we're very deliberate about uh, measuring, uh, analyzing, target setting and improvement work. And I think that's what makes us successful in getting better over time. It's a very defined strategy. Um, in addition to that, you mentioned transparency. So I mentioned earlier that payers are um, you know, looking at this data. There's something called HCAPS, uh, H-C-A-H-P-S. I, I won't even try to describe what it means, but it's basically a government-required patient experience survey for adult inpatients. Every hospital in America that wants Medicare, and we all need Medicare uh, funding, does this survey. And the results of that survey are publicly reported. You can go to the CMS, the Medicare website. You can look up any hospital in America. You can see how they're doing on these measures of nursing and doctors and call bell response, etc. And you can compare hospitals against one another it's actually called Hospital Compare. That's the name of the, the website. And you can make decisions about your care. That's out in the public domain. Uh, and the government also uh, assigns star ratings to it, just like uh, you know your Yelp food uh, gets star rated. So does the hospital. That drives our clinicians a little crazy sometimes, but that's, that's the environment uh, that we're living in, and we need to embrace it. Uh, and people can make choices based on that publicly reported data. That's for inpatients now, but there are other tools being promulgated by Medicare. Uh, and then once Medicare does it, the private payers uh, like Blue Cross also will, will do this. But there's one for the emergency department, for ambulatory surgery, for pediatrics. 
so these measures are only going to expand they're going to be publicly available those are official measures there's also lots of unofficial ratings out there whether it's some of the the physician rating websites like Vitals or uh, DocDoc, those kind of um, uh, rating uh, sites on the web. And you can look at hospital ratings on Yelp as well. Um, I'm not sure that they're always verified or accurate, but you know, there's lots of ratings out there. Uh, so so we, we do not oppose transparency uh, or being held accountable. That's okay with us. Um, and we want to get better. So and we think this is important. But if we're in an environment where that transparency is only going to expand. And then one more thing, um, you know, people are paying more for their health care, co-pays, deductibles, et cetera. That's not going to change. And the more people pay out of their own pocket, the more they are starting to have opinions about the experience and wanting us to do better. So all those dynamics work together uh, to make this much more out in the public than it was even 10 years ago. Interesting. So we've talked about this from a patient perspective. We've talked about this from a experienced officer, experienced department perspective. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about what the clinician reaction has been like to really placing the patient experience at the forefront. Uh, you know, doctors get sort of a bad reputation sometimes of, uh, you know, being very paternalistic and they just kind of want to come in. They want to provide the care the way that they provided the care for the last 30, 40 years and walk out of there without much consideration. So could you maybe talk a little bit about um, what those conflicts have looked like and how you maybe have worked through them? Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I have a lot of empathy for uh, frontline caregivers, doctors, nurses uh, in this time. It's really hard to be a nurse or a doctor or a social worker uh, or other clinician, a physician's assistant. Um, I can name a whole range of people. Why is it tough? Because the pressure on people to do more with less is, is part of healthcare as it is in many other industries. Um, healthcare's cost nationally is, is rising and it's unsustainable. So we're in this period of trying to figure out how we structure our care in a, in a way that's clinically appropriate but also affordable. Uh, so most doctors, most nurses come to work, they've got quite a day ahead of them. Um, and so my starting point with nurses and doctors is always one of um, empathy, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. Um, I feel like if I'm a doctor sitting in a chair and the chief experience officer comes in, I need to answer for that doctor, what's in it for me? You know, what's gonna make, how is this patient experience stuff gonna make my day any better? And if doctors think that, again, it's about happiness, you're, you're dead in the water. Again, no doctor is opposed to happiness as a goal, but they know that, you know, some things that are going to make patients happy, you know, give me opioids. Well, that may not be good for you. Uh, give me an antibiotic. Well, that, that may not be the right course of action. I want a particular test. Well, that test may or may not be required clinically. So when you talk to them about how do you instill confidence, that leads to you talking about how you build trust with your patients, Again, I hardly know a clinician that doesn't want to do that. And then you give them ways that they can do that. And here's the thing. When you help clinicians to, to communicate with patients in a way that builds confidence and trust, other things happen. Um, one, you often can run more efficiently through your day. Uh, two, when your day is over, let's say you're in an outpatient practice, when you've really been able to do that communication work, guess what happens? 
left emails to you the next day saying I didn't understand, left calls to your practice, etc. So most patient experience best practices are good for patients, but if they're done consistently, they're also good for clinicians. So my starting point working with doctors and nurses is really trying to help them feel like we understand what they're up against every day, um, setting the goal in the right context that they can buy into, and then helping them with practices and interventions that are good for patients but also good for them. It has to be a win-win. Fantastic. And one last question and a bit more general, but what would you say is your advice for young health management professionals that are just about to enter the workforce or they're in their first few years, especially considering, as you said earlier, healthcare isn't in its best state at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, if you're going to get into healthcare, you have to love challenge um, and you have to be motivated, I think, to see healthcare for all of its strengths, but also its faults, and be passionate about wanting to make it better. I think the mindset is really, really critical. I can remember as, as sort of a, a young administrator coming to work the first years or, or two and thinking, oh my God, the sky is always falling, everything's so tough. And then I realized, the sky is always falling. <laughs> you know, we're in a period of great change. And once I sort of embraced that reality, and shifted my mindset to, I'm here to try to help us navigate through this. Um, it made it made everything much more fulfilling, and it helped me kind of uh, pace myself uh, each day. And when I think of early in my career, you know, what, what allowed me to sort of get to where I am now, which I, I feel so lucky, so blessed in so many ways, um, I worked hard in the job that I started with. So I didn't come in with notions about who I should be or what I was, what I needed to be at that moment. I, I got my foot in the door, and I did well with the things I was given. I volunteered to be involved with things that sort of made sense and 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 learn. It helped me learn more about healthcare, and I really listened to mentors and, and allowed myself to be educated and exposed to other things. And my best mentors, honestly, were my, were my first bosses. Sometimes when you have these mentoring relationships that are sort of outside your daily workflow, it, it doesn't always work as well as really carefully selecting your boss. <laughs> I mean, your boss is selecting you, but also I think it's good for you to think about who you're working for and, and picking people who are going to help you grow and, and develop uh, and also help you do a good job in whatever role you're in. And I've been very fortunate in my career to have had and still have really wonderful bosses um, who believe in me, uh, who are honest with me when I need to do something better, um, and who, when I'm doing my job really well, also expose me to other things. I think that's the perfect ending to a great interview, Rick. We'd really like to thank you for your time this morning. our conversation with Rick Evans. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for the next one with Megan Corcoran, who's the Provider Engagement Strategy Manager at Oscar Health down in NYC. See you guys.